What is complexity science and why should you care about it? Well, complexity science is all about understanding systems. The reality is that you're surrounded by systems. The economy is a system, your body is a system, cities are systems, companies are systems, the environment is a system. And if you really want to understand how these systems work, or just as importantly, how they fail, then you need complexity science. Because complexity science provides us with the underlying principles that govern these kinds of systems, even though they may seem completely unrelated. And to help begin this journey, we're joined by David Krakauer, President and William H. Miller Professor of Complex Systems at the Santa Fe Institute. David's going to take us through the history of complexity science, and he's going to leave us with his top three takeaways about how you can start to think about complex systems. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome, David, to the podcast. I thought I'd start with the obvious, but I think incredibly difficult question to answer, which is what is complexity? There's a simple definition, but we're going to have to unpack it. Complexity essentially studies networks of adaptive agents. Now, what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it's clear, right? It would be neurons in a brain, species in an ecosystem, traders in a market. Everyone can imagine what it means, but it's worth delving down a little deeper to get to some of the fundamental concepts. Firstly, networks. Well, networks are about systems. They're about connections. And so we're interested in any system where you can define in a principled way connections between the components. And this is a huge variety of systems and and really diverse, isn't it, David? Exactly. So you can see right away that that alone opens up the entire world to complexity because, as you said, the genes within the cell form a regulatory network. Companies in an economy form networks of buyers and sellers and producers and manufacturers. So at that level alone, it would be too generic and encompass too much of the world. So you go to the next component, which is adaptive, networks of adaptive agents. Well, adaptive is interesting because it's about using energy to robustly store information about the world. So a well-adapted system encodes information about the world or environment in which it lives. So that's already restricting us a bit, right? That you have an agent, if you like, and I'll get there, that can learn about the world, adapt to the world. And is there a good example of an adaptive system versus a non-adaptive system for people to get their head around? One distinction is just between living and non-living. I mean, there's no sense in which you'd say the moon adapts, the ocean doesn't adapt, but everything alive does. And it's one of the characteristics of living systems. So if you like, that's the critical distinguishing concept between the living and non-living. So we had networks that encompassed lots, including non-living things, right? Put adaptive in and now we've restricted it somewhat to the living part of the universe or the world. And I like the concept of agents as well, as opposed to I tend to talk about agents and components, and I probably talk about agents of a system more than I used to talk about components of a system. But what, what is the fundamental difference for you in both of those? 
Yeah, so agents are really interesting because agency is about purpose. It's about strategy. And you acquire a strategy by accumulating an experience or memories, and you use memories to perform inferences. And that's where computation comes in, intelligence comes in, and so on. So that further restricts what we're discussing, right? Because we're interested in degrees of agency. And of course, at the philosophical level, that implies things like free will. Complexity science is not new. It's been around for a long time. And we obviously got a lot to unpack in terms of trying to understand the networks and adaptive agents and that. But where did it all start? It's been around for a while. The history is really interesting. And as it turns out, I'm just editing a four-volume book on the foundational papers of complexity going back to 1920 to the year 2000. And there's about 65, 70 papers. And it's fun to do that survey and ask, how much were we scooped by history? You know, how much have we contributed? One way to think about it is in the 1920s, it was this period where people were very interested in energy and entropy and thermodynamics. And in particular, how energy and entropy play out in living systems, not just in physics. And then you get names like Lotker and Zillard and others. So that's a very important early part. In the 1930s and 40s, you get the birth of cybernetics and control theory, you know, the interest in feedback and homeostasis and regulation. And that's people like Wiener and others. At the same time, it's the early days of neural nets, right? Perceptrons, McCullough and Pitts, and information theory, Claude Shannon. So that's all in the 40s, right? 30s and 40s. You move into the 50s, and that's the kind of golden age of computing. So that's Alan Turing inventing, in some sense, the modern computer, the extension of physics into information theory by Jaynes in something called the maximum entropy principle, which is very important. And then in the 60s, nonlinear dynamics, the butterfly effect, the works of people like Ed Lorenz and Mandelbrot and Feigenbaum, all these big names. So for me, the culmination of all of that the 1970s, where essentially the core ideas that are about systems that have nonlinear properties sensitivity to initial conditions, butterfly effect type things. They are computing information about the world using energy. They're becoming disordered, so aging and dying, one of the characteristics of living systems. So for me, the 80s were about the institutionalization of complexity. So that's when SFI came into existence. But many of the concepts, I think, were forged over that period of about 60 years in the early part of the 20th century. Wow, there's a lot there, David, in the history. Where did the SFI come from? SFI is interesting. So all of that, as I said, that history kind of comes together towards the sort of end of the 70s. And the Institute, SFI, Santa Fe Institute, is this consortium of over-decorated <laughs> scientists. <laughs> I mean, there were just far too many Nobel Prizes. And they all came together and they said, what is going on here? at the intersection of energy, information, agency, computation, all those constellation of concepts that they seem to be seeing everywhere. And it's really worth making a point here. Every discipline, physics, chemistry, biology, worries about energy and information, but they make the discipline the foreground and those concepts the background. What the founders of SFI said is, that, what if you turn that around? What if you make energy information computation and so on the foreground and you make the disciplines case studies? 
which is profound, isn't it? Because that was not the way universities were set up. They were set up that if you do an ecology, you're an ecologist and you do this. In economics, you do this. And that was a totally different way of thinking about it, wasn't it? Totally different. And it just changes the whole practice because all of a sudden, I can easily talk to you because we're both interested in information as opposed to, oh, I'm a physicist and you're an economist. We have nothing to say to each other. It just creates this incredible shared language that spans many of the disciplines. So it's incredibly synthetic. And these founders in the 80s realized that and the power that was in that. Give us a key concept of what information or energy that a biologist can talk to an economist about, for example, that feels like, no, 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 there's nothing in comparison. There's no way to compare what these guys are talking about or girls are talking about. But in this case, we can. I mean, it's very simple, right? So let's take biology and economics or something. Biologists seem to be about living systems that evolved. It's about anatomy, physiology, metabolism, life, all the usual things you learn at school. What's economics about? Well, it's about trade and it's about markets and it's about money, but maybe they're both about information. Maybe biology is basically about the information in the genes, the information in the nervous system. Maybe economics is about information gathering by markets. So you can start to see where all of a sudden we've got loads to talk about because we can ask, how do those mechanics work? One in a biological case, one in a cultural case, when we're looking at essentially the same principle. So it just opens up and that's partly what happened actually for us. It was all these economists, physicists, biologists got together because they were talking the same language as long as they foregrounded the principle. And what happened then? What were those early days like, David? Because I'm sure they met resistance. Yeah, fortunately, I wasn't there. I think I might have been crushed by the sort of weight of accomplishment. I mean, it's really kind of frightening because you've got people like Ken Arrow and the one Nobel Prize in 72, Eigen 67, Murray Gell-Mann 1969, Wilczek 2004, and then all these others like Stephen Wolfram, who was very young at the time. So it was an interesting group. What I think happened is that firstly, they were smart enough to realize that there was something here. There was something to this. And it was kind of surprising that history that I gave hadn't yet manifested institutionally, right? We've got countless physics departments, like countless economics departments, but where's the complexity? So that was a weird thing. It was just an obvious gap to be filled. So it was like an entrepreneurial possibility. What then happened, which I found fascinating, is that science writers and science journalists realized that there was something really interesting happening. And the first bestseller to really bring some of these ideas to the foreground was James Gleick's Chaos that was published in 1987, which is three years after our founding. And that was mainly about chaos, right? Lorenz, fractals, the renormalization group of Mitch Feigenbaum, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's really rich and fascinating, math mainly mathematics, to be honest. Shortly thereafter, the book that perhaps put SFI on the map was Mitch Waldrop's book, Complexity, published in 92. The same year, by the way, that Roger Lewin published his book, Complexity, 92. And they were really SFI books. And they took this much broader approach to complexity, right, to consider not just the mathematics, but the domains, the economic domain, the biological domain, archaeology, history, anthropology. They had a broader church attitude than Gleick had that was much more technical, I think it's fair to say. And those books were bestsellers. And so all of a sudden, this little institute on the top of a mountain in Santa Fe, New Mexico, was like, what is going on over there? It's like the eye of Sauron pivoted towards our little <laughs> village. 
And so, you know, there's something going on there. We need to know what it is to sort of stamp it out. But then something really fun happened, which is that more popular writers got interested, right? So Michael Crichton, when he was writing Jurassic Park, made Ian Malcolm, like the chaotician, one, a very annoying protagonist. That's Jeff Goldblum, isn't it? Yeah, the kind of the most sort of the interesting, annoying brat nerd in the film. Then you had William Gibson writing episodes in The X-Files where the nerdy scientist postdocs are our postdocs working in artificial life. And then, of course, Neil Stevenson most recently in Seven Eves writing about complexity science in space. So it diffused out into popular culture. What are the key things of going, science was all about you get narrower and narrower and narrower. And what you're really saying by saying putting information, putting energy in the foreground rather than the background what you're saying, David, is that it's really saying, is there a set of underlying principles that govern systems? It doesn't matter whether that system is in economics or biology. And is there a common way of understanding the principles of these systems that we actually lose in traditional science because we try and break down the system into its smallest parts? Absolutely. It's funny you say that. One metaphor I like to give is cubism in painting. In the early 1910s and teens, a group of artists said, is there a different way of looking at the world other than realistic painting? And first comes analytic cubism, right? Which is people know that sort of painting from Picasso and Poingri, which is, we're going to take all of the elements of a scene and break them down into their constituent parts. So like a man playing a guitar, you see part of, you see a string, you see the hand, you see the foot. It all looks a bit disconnected, but they're the fundamental facets. And I think of that as like reductionism. And a little cubism was take a system, break it apart, look at its components carefully. Then came synthetic cubism. And that said, yeah, but how do you put those parts together again to represent the scene in a novel way so that you can see the whole differently? And I think that's what we call emergence in our field. That's another side to what complexity was trying to do. It says, we don't want to do reductionism. We don't want to build disciplines around feet, hands, strings, the neck of the guitar, and so forth. We want to understand how these parts come together to create new patterns and new functions. And that was quite a radical move. And even to this day, people have a hard time with it. And one of the reasons, isn't it, which I read Melanie Mitchell's book recently, and she was saying we argue and fight about even defining what complexity is. People use different ways, which seem to me a little bit to come from each of the disciplines. It's a little bit of that background sneaking into the foreground to demand some limelight. What, what do you think of that? I think you're totally right. I think that humans are human beings and we can't help it. We want to own this area through our own unique lens. I don't think it matters if we don't agree on a definition. I think it matters if we don't agree on the principles. And that is where I think you'd find a lot of consensus. And that's more important. Definitions are always slippery. And the more carefully you look at something, the more they fall apart. That's why I'm not that interested in them. But operational definitions, as I started with, where we said networks of adaptive agents, that's pretty unobjectionable. And very few people in my world would say, oh, that's not right. Yeah. And I think it's very easy, isn't it, for an economist to put his or her world in those terms, an ecologist to put him or her world in those terms as well. What are the biggies for you in complexity? Because I mean, I think one of the things, if you've come in from a place where you haven't been exposed to complexity thinking, 
You're coming from, we could say, a Newtonian world or a reductionist world where you tend to say, well, the world has got cause and effect and it's linear and I want it to make sense to me. And I think a lot of people do. And when you get to complexity and it's not quite like that, what are the three or four or how many you want big ideas that people have to start with to get their head around to say, okay, this is sort of the beginning of this journey into complexity. What are they for you? One would be, and you've actually almost said one, which is beyond simple causality. We're so used to looking in every area for one dominant factor, like the silver bullet. If we just change the interest rate, everything will be okay. If I just take a pill, everything will be okay. We just love this idea of one-dimensional interventions. And I think one of the things we've learned about complex systems is you have to think about complex causality, which is huge multiplicity of factors that interact to produce the thing you care about and give up on this endless pursuit of the single dominant factor. And many of the methods of complexity science are efforts to address precisely that problem. Network theory, in some sense, complex forms of simulation are all efforts to kind of bring in the collectivity the multiplicity of factors as opposed to single dominant factors. That's key, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people think, well, if I can't break it down to something simple, I sort of can't do anything. I'm helpless. But what you're saying is that a lot of that science is really trying to build the tools to understand the complexity. I think exactly right. I mean, I mean, one, that's an interesting pathology of this one-dimensional thinking is we build one-dimensional toolkits. And then with a one-dimensional toolkit, then everything is a one-dimensional problem. And so... We have to be true to the richness of the phenomenology and develop new methods. So that's one big one. Another big one is thinking beyond equilibrium. It's not necessarily something that will be obvious to people. So much of our thought is about the static behavior of things. Most of economic theory is about equilibrium. That's how the world will be. If we intervene in a certain way, it will reach that state and stay there and so on. But of course, most people also have this experience in their life of learning and growing and aging and dying. But oddly enough, the theories haven't reflected that dynamical property. And there's a good reason for it, by the way, that it's very difficult mathematically to study out of equilibrium systems. And we've had to develop methods. That was what Lorenz did to study these nonlinear dynamical systems and methods of simulation, agent-based modeling, adaptive computation. These are all these methods that try to remain true out of equilibrium nature of reality. So for example, just to make this really critical, economic collapse is not a part of economic theory. I find that mind-blowing. I've heard it before. It is mind-blowing that bubbles and bursts can't happen. Isn't that right? They can't happen. They just don't exist. They don't exist. The theory won't accommodate them <laughs> because they're dynamical phenomena. You're laughing, right? Because it's, it's not this, but it's true. And we have to build the mathematics to allow for those possibilities. And so that's a second. Like you've got to get beyond equilibrium. And now you get into other areas which are more subtle. One that's particularly interesting to me, sort of beyond individualism. If you think about how we're raised, it's about individuals like great heroes, Einstein, Tesla, Darwin, Curie, that's in science, Lincoln, any walk of life, you have your favorites. They somehow made a disproportionate contribution, which in some sense they did. 
when we go to school, it's all about individuals, right? You learn, you are examined. It's not the class that's examined. Maybe it should be. We've learned that almost all phenomena of interest from the study of intelligence, which is something I think we're going to talk about in the future, is about collectives. And we don't have good language for thinking about collective intelligence. Everyone knows it's true. We talk about teams. Any manager, any coach of a sports team understands very well it's not about individuals. And yet, most of our institutions in society are about rewarding individuals and not building the structure to support collective intelligence. That's a huge one. There's much work to be done and tool development to be done to give people the intuition for how they should proceed. What you're saying there, David, or what at least I'm hearing is complexity science is about building the knowledge, the principles, tools to get you beyond that simple causation, beyond the equilibrium, beyond the individualism. Exactly, it is. And also, another way to say this is, it should also allow us to discover the occasions when those are legitimate because they're going to be in the distribution. There are going to be occasions where the individual dominates, where the causality is simple and so on. But we'd like to, they're the special cases. It's a little bit like my earlier point about foreground and background. It's almost as if we've got the world backwards and equilibrium is the special case, not the general case and on and on. And so I don't know what happened to us, you know, to be so topsy-turvy with the nature of reality. And complexity is all about turning that round and tackling it from the other end, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think we need to sort of inject that somehow, not only into institutions, universities and culture, but into schools. Because unfortunately, I think many of us were raised in a world where everything was kind of upside down. And I suspect that a lot of what we're dealing with in culture, the whole response to the COVID pandemic, the way that we're dealing with climate, the way we deal with economic stress, comes from the application of exactly the wrong mental models to complex reality. David, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Sean. That was fun. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.